So we are going to be talking this morning about trusting God's providence in sleeplessness, in justice, in coincidence, and in counsel. And I know that's a long title, but again, I, when I started this book of Esther, I told you that even though we don't see the name of God mentioned anywhere in it, what we do see is that God is in every little detail of this book. And so we see God's overarching providence that is, is just demonstrated from the beginning of this book all the way to the end. And as a matter of fact, if the Lord continues with my thought pattern next week, I'm going to close out the book of Esther by showing you how this is the same story that God's providence is told in every story from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And no matter where you go, I really believe that one of the primary points of God's Word when He gives it to us is to teach us and show us that He is in full control and that He has a plan and a purpose and everything is working toward that. No matter how bad it seems or no matter how good it seems. The providence of God... I'm going to define it for you this morning. In um, what I would call simple terms, you may not think it's simple, but just listen uh, carefully. I'll try to say it slowly. The providence of God is how God exercises His supreme power. In other words, would you agree with me this morning that when the Bible says that not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from His will, would you agree with me that that absolutely is just one of many passages that teaches us that God has supreme authority over everything in this world? And so He tells us that we are worth more than many sparrows. And so if God is sovereign over a sparrow, then He goes on to say that not even a hair on your head can be harmed. So all y'all bald people this morning, blame it on God, all right? <clears throat> That's all I'm saying. But God exercises His sovereign power over everything. And here's what providence means. He does that to accomplish all of His purpose in creation. In other words, God has a purpose and God has a plan that was put into place long before Lucifer became Satan long before you were ever created, long before the foundations of this world was ever made, long before time began. God had a purpose and God had a plan for all of His creation and all of His time. How is He going to work that out? He's going to use His supreme power and He's going to exercise it over everything and everyone in order to make sure that His plan and His purpose is accomplished. That's what providence means. And so when I say God has providence, I mean that there is nothing that takes place in the realm of this entire universe, in all of God's creation, both in the heavens and here on earth, there is nothing that happens that God is not sovereignly orchestrating to make sure that it always works together for His purpose. Now I'm not saying that God is making all of your choices for you. No. You have human responsibility to make your own choices. 
But let me tell you something. God sovereignly uses every choice you make to make sure that it always works together for His plan and His purpose. And for some that love God and are called according to His purpose, it'll always work for your good. And for others that don't love God and are not called according to His purpose, they may see some good out of it in this life, but it will not ultimately in the end work together for their good and according to God's purpose for them anyway. So God's providence is how He exercises His sovereign power over everything to accomplish all of His purpose in creation. Remember that. Let me show you a few scriptures that, that just a few, all right? I can't name them all for you this morning, but just a few that show this. Psalm 115 beginning in verse 3. Look at what this says. Our God is in the heavens, and what does He do? In other words, is there anything that God pleases to do that He don't do? God does all that He pleases. If it pleases Him to do something, He does it. I don't care what it is. He does it. Let me show you another scripture. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, and look at this last part, who works all things, what? According to the counsel of His will. Whatever the counsel of His will is, whatever His purpose is, He works all things toward that purpose. We see it all over the Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10. Look at what God said through the prophet Isaiah about Himself. In Isaiah 46.10 He says, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. And look at the start of it. Declaring the end from the beginning. Not the beginning from the end. That's important. God sees the end. See, we look from the beginning toward the end. God don't do that. God's already at the end. He's already there. And He stands back and He declares the beginning to the end. In other words, it's all according to His plan. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times. In other words, long before time was actually made. From ancient times, He declares things that are not yet done. And this is what He says. My counsel or my purpose, some of your translations say, or my plan, I think the uh, New American Standard Bible says it. He says, my purpose, my plan, my counsel, it shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. There is nothing that God plans and purposes that it will not come to pass. I want you to understand something this morning. There is not a single time that God has ever sat on His throne and went, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. You look at the fall of Lucifer and Satan and what he did in the garden. Do you really think God sit there and didn't see that and sit up there with his hands going, Oh, Adam, please, please don't make this decision. No, God knew that long before he ever created Adam. He knew your end before he ever created you. He knew your end and all of your sins before he ever saved you. That ought to tell you something. 
somebody that can look at you and know everything about you and still love you? <laughs> Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, again, that's what Jesus said, that not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from God's will. Finally, in Job chapter 42, verse 6, Job, when he finally got to the end of it, remember, he questioned God all through this thing. He did. He never quit trusting God. He never quit declaring his faith in God. His faith never failed. But all the way through this thing, God, uh, Job said, God, you have to be wrong in this. And if I could put you on trial, I would. But who can put you on trial? And God finally came down, and God finally had a little conversation with Job, as y'all read it and you know about it. And then at the end of it, Job finally said this in Job 42 verse 6. He said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Go back to verse 5. Um, that's Riley up there. Hello, Riley. 42 verse 5. It's there somewhere, okay? I promise. But he said... When he got to the end of his trial, here's what Job said. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, before my suffering, before me going through this so that I had no choice but to, but to just trust you, before that I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear. But now on the other side of this suffering, now that I've had to cling to you with everything I've had and I had no choice but to just trust you through it, now my eyes see you. Amen. In other words, the difference in the way you know God in suffering and in blessing is like the difference in hearing about God and actually seeing Him face to face. See, we think, well, if God is so sovereign, why would He allow us to go through suffering? I want you to understand something. God knows who we are. He knows our heart. And He knows exactly what we require in order to bring us to the place of truly knowing Him. And for 99.999% of the people, that don't happen without suffering. It just don't. But he goes on again, whatever verse it is, it's on, it's on down. It may have been verse 7, I'm not sure. But he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Is it verse 2 is what Sheree just said. So you can find out. Job 42 verse 2. But the point is, Job had finally realized that there is nothing that God plans to do that will ever be swayed in any direction by anything or anybody. If God has a plan, it will be followed through. His power and His providence will accomplish everything that He has purposed in His will. And so we see that God never wrings His hands in concern or worry. The Bible actually tells us, and, and I didn't give them the Scripture, but somewhere around Psalm, the first few verses there, the Bible says that all of the kings of the earth gather together and scheme against God. And then the Bible says that he who sits on the throne laughs at them. He laughs at them. They get together and they make their choices and, and everybody that schemes to work against God, God's literally sitting up there giggling at the futility of human beings. The same way with Satan. 
It's, it, 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 at the end of the day, God is allowing Satan to do everything he's doing because even in the evil of this world, when it reaches a pinnacle and God triumphs over all of it, whether it's on the cross or whether it's in the battle of Armageddon when Jesus comes back and conquers it all, no matter what it is, God allows evil to rise and rise and rise because at the end of the day, He comes and He just demolishes it like that with a cross the Bible says that through the breath of His appearing, he, he, he lights the evil one on fire and destroys him. Now, I ain't saying Jesus got bad breath. I'm just telling you what the Bible said, okay? But it does say that through, through, through His appearing, that literally he, he, he extinguishes or He destroys the evil one. And God sits up there and laughs at all of His plans. And we see this truth clearly taught in books like Esther. We're going to continue seeing that whether it's from a king not being able to sleep, God is sovereign over it, and it's all part of His providence. Or whether it is um, a, a humble the, um, a servant that didn't get rewarded and didn't get recognized, God is sovereign and His providence is all over it. Or whether it's allowing a prideful enemy to rise to the top and, and put plans together to destroy His people, God is sovereign over it and His providence is all part of it. And then at the end, whether it's counsel that He gives or whether it's coincidences in your life, no matter what it is, we're going to see that God, it's all part of God's providence and how He's working all things according to His plan. Let me give you a quick background right here. First off, Esther has been made queen. Y'all remember that, right? Esther has been made queen. Mordecai hears a, um, a plot to kill the king back in chapter 2. He tells Esther, who then tells the king and saves the king's life, but then Mordecai is overlooked, he's not rewarded. And then instead, the enemy is promoted in chapter 3. You remember last week's message. So the enemy is promoted, the enemy plans annihilation for Mordecai and all the Jews because Mordecai won't bow to this enemy because he's the enemy of God. And Mordecai is not bowing to the enemy of God. Mordecai pleads with Esther to help again. We need your help to make sure that our people don't die this time. But Esther is scared. And so she finally asks the people to fast. And Esther begins to take courage. And she overcomes her fear. And she decides she's going to come up with a plan. And so her plan is that she's going to hold a feast for the king and for Haman. And when she holds this feast, the king asks her, she says, What do you want, Esther? I'll give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom. But Esther's still scared. She's not able to go through with the plan. So she says, I tell you what, y'all come back again tomorrow night. I'm going to give you another feast and then I'll tell you what my request is. Well, then it just so happens that that night when Haman leaves with his chest all puffed out and he's telling everybody about how the king, uh, the, the queen only wanted the king and him to the feast and there was nobody greater in the land and he's on his way home. And who does he see? Mordecai over by the king's gate. And Mordecai won't bow. And it just lights a fire inside of Haman. And Haman goes home. And when he gets home, he gets his wife and he gets his wise counselors together. And he tells them what Mordecai has done to him after the queen honored him so highly. And then he comes out and his, his wife and his, his counselors say, Hey, here's what you need to do. 
You need to build gallows, or basically these were big stakes that you would impale people on. They weren't like hanging like we used to know. It was hanging like literally you impaled the person on this stake. Alright? And he said, I want you to build gallows. You need to build it 75 feet tall, Haman, so that everybody can see. Because the Jewish custom and the Jewish teaching was that in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, that anyone who hangs on a tree, look at this, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, the next verse would go on to say that he is a curse. That, let, that he is literally viewed at as a curse. And so what you're going to be able to see is that Mordecai takes the not Mordecai, Haman takes this and he tries to put this in, don't display to all the Jews that this is what happens to the people that don't bow to me. He is a curse. God has cursed him. He thinks God is for him, not against him. And so... The next thing we see happen, and here's where we're fixing to get into Esther chapter 6, alright? Mordecai spends all night long between the two feasts, and he builds these gallows 75 feet tall. Matter of fact, that may have been the reason why the king couldn't sleep. I don't know, maybe Haman was out there building and hammering and going on, but 75 feet tall of gallows are built. And then Haman... His wife told him, then get up real early in the morning and go to the king's palace first. And you tell the king what Mordecai has done and get his permission to kill Mordecai. Now all of this just so happened to take place between the two feasts. Ain't that interesting? And Haman just so happens to be in the court waiting on the request to kill Mordecai when the king just so happened to not be able to sleep that night. And so this is where we get into Esther chapter 6. And let's look at Esther chapter 6, verse 1 through 2. It says, On that night, the king could not sleep. And so what do you do when you can't sleep? Sleep in. (laughs) Most people get a book, Bobby. All right? So the king decides, I need a book. And so he asked one of his servants to go get me a specific book. Not just any book. It just so happens the king can't sleep on this night. And it just so happens that he asked his servant for a specific book. And look what he says. He gave orders to bring the book of the memorial deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And then notice what happened in verse 2. And just so happened that they... When they're reading the book, they turn the book to the place out of all the deeds in the chronicles that have been written about this king. Just so happens they turn the book to the place where Mordecai had been overlooked. And so in verse 2, look what it says. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Just so happened that a king can't sleep and it just so happened that they bring the book where Mordecai was overlooked. And it just so happened that Haman this very night is waiting in the king's court while the king can't sleep to request the king to kill Mordecai. And yet they say God's not in this book. 
The first thing that we see in this is that God is absolutely sovereign and His providence, we see it in sleeplessness. You know, a good night's sleep is one of those things that we normally take it for granted until you ain't had one in a while, amen? But you know, a good night's sleep is something that is just so vital for us. But sometimes, for whatever purpose, God either grants His people sleep or He doesn't grant people sleep. Let me show you some scriptures to prove what I'm talking about. In Psalm chapter 4, verse 8, the psalmist says this, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, and here's why, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In other words, there is a a good night's sleep that comes whenever we recognize that we're in a good place with God. And the truth of the matter is, many times when we're not in a good place with God, if the Holy Spirit resides in you at all, your pillow is like a stone. And you toss and you turn because things aren't right. And so God here, the psalmist says that we're able to lie down in peace and sleep a lot of times because we know and we're assured that God's got us. We're in a good place with Him. Next, in Psalm 127 verse 2, the psalmist says, It is vain, it is in vain that you rise up early and you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved, what? Sleep. There again, sleep, a good night's sleep, is actually a gift from God. But what do we do when God takes sleep from His beloved? How do we respond to that? What are some of the things that we should do? Let me read one more scripture so that you understand something. In Psalm 121 verse 4, look what it says. Behold, He who keeps Israel will neither what? God doesn't need sleep. There's never a point that God ever says, you know, I think I'll take a nap. No, God doesn't need sleep. But we need sleep. And God gives sleep. And so what happens when He takes sleep away from His beloved? Well, I'm not going to go through the Psalms, but I'm sure if you went through the Psalms that you would see many times that they weeped when they couldn't sleep. Sometimes it was because God had allowed trials, or sometimes it was because God had allowed suffering to enter into their life. Sometimes it was because of God's um, uh, sovereign power over our lives that we weren't able to sleep. He took sleep away. It's Him that gives sleep, but it's also God that takes sleep. And sometimes it's our own heart. But in this case right here, we see that this is a king that... He don't get sleep because God has a sovereign plan for him. So sometimes when we can't sleep, we weep. Sometimes we sing. When you look at Psalm chapter 42, you don't have to go there. But the psalmist, when he's not able to sleep, he says, My tears have drenched my bed night after night after night. And then he goes on later to say, But his song is with me. See, sometimes when you can't sleep, God means for you to just sing songs of faith. To just remind yourself about who God is. 
about your trust in God's promises. And sometimes God means for you to weep as a right emotion to things that are happening in your life. Maybe you weep because of your sin. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing. And so sometimes you weep. Sometimes you sing. Sometimes the psalmist would pray. They'd cry out to God in the night because they couldn't sleep. Sometimes the right response is not just sleeping or, or not just singing or weeping or praying. Sometimes it's to seek counsel from His Word. The psalmist would say, in the nighttime, I meditate on your word. And sometimes it's just God takes sleep from you because it's time for you to seek Him. It's time for you to actually look for counsel from His word. Sometimes God keeps you up at night to, to meditate on His steadfast love and His faithfulness. And sometimes you can't sleep for those things. These are just a few things that God tells us in His Word that His people did when they couldn't sleep. But now this king, he can't sleep. And so what does he do? He calls for a book. Not just any book. He wants to read the book of all the great things that he's done. The book of the memorable deeds. And he wants to hear all the great things that have been done for him. And he just so happens to get to this part and he finds out that Mordecai saved my life. And he remembers that. And he says, hey, what was done for Mordecai? And that servant said, oh, you know what? I just so happened to remember nothing at all was done for Mordecai. And you remember last week? We could have looked at that and Mordecai could have looked at that and went, God, come on. I mean, all this good I'm doing. I saved the king's life and for what? But that's not what he did. Instead, he chose to go ahead and to trust God. And now here we come to the place in God's providence where God rewards His humility. God rewards His faithfulness. Now listen, here's what I want you to understand. I'm not saying that God is always responsible for every sleepless night. Sometimes there are things in this world that just gives us sleepless nights. But I am telling you that there are many times that God is responsible for your sleepless nights. And that is a very good time to do just the opposite of what this king did and to evaluate your own life and to determine, are there sins I need to confess? Are there prayers I need to pray? Is there counsel that I need and I need to be just spending some time in His Word looking for counsel? Do I need wisdom? What is it that, that, that might be keeping me awake so that I can seek God and I can hopefully get the gift from Him to lie down and sleep? And this is the lesson that I think we take from that. But again, the point that I want you to get is that God is sovereign even over people's sleep. He even determines whether you sleep or not. The next thing we see is verses 3 through 11, and it is God's providence in justice or God's providence in humility and exaltation. Let's read verse 3 through 11. It says, And the king said, What honor or distinction has been, on, has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Well, who's in the court? In other words, the king says, I'm not going to go back to sleep until we do something for this man. And so here God is. He's stirring this king up. His hand is all over every detail of whether or not we're talking about Mordecai's humiliation 
or we're talking about Haman's exaltation. And now here we go. God's got His hand on it and He's fixing to flip the script. Because here's what God promises. God promises that he who humbles himself, I will exalt. But he who walks in pride, I will humble. And so for a little while, it would be easy for the people of God to look at Haman and Mordecai and go, God, your word says, and you know what God will say? Just wait. Just wait. The time is coming when justice will be done. The time is coming when those who need to be humiliated, they will be. And the time is coming when those who need to be exalted, they will be. Just wait. Just trust God's providence in all things. Look at verse, um, um, the, uh, verse 4. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered. I love that. You know, the whole point of the book of Esther, I believe, is for us to... It's actually partly comedy. It really is. It's for us to look at this book and read the story and just laugh with God as He laughs at all the enemy's schemes and everything the enemy is trying to do to thwart his plans as if it were even partly possible. And so it just so happened that Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. And what's he there for? To speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now remember, when you go back to chapter 5, he just built these things. He had to have been up all night or, or gave his servants orders, one of the two, building these gallows. And then verse 5 says, And the king's young men told him, Well, Haman is there standing in the court. Now this is very early in the morning. You know how we know that? The king's trying to sleep. He can't sleep. So it just so happens, maybe 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, Haman decides, I'm going to get to the palace early because I am fired up about this Mordecai guy. I've got my gallows ready. We're going we're to take care of this. And then he just so happens to get to the palace early and he just so happens to be the only servant in the palace that the king... Because remember, what's the king looking for? Why is he asking who's in my court? He wants something done for Mordecai, right? And so here, Haman just so happens to be in the court. And then verse 5, he said, And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? I love this. Watch the pride of Haman. Because remember, when God says that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, it will happen. And you're fixing to see an example of it right here. And Haman said to himself. Now he ain't talking out loud, is he? Haman talking to himself here. And look what he says. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Verse 7. So Haman said to the king. Remember, he's thinking this is what's going to be done for me, right? So here Haman says to the king. For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought. And not just royal robes. Look what he says next. Which the king has worn. That's important. Keep going. And let the horse that the king has ridden on. Not just any horse. Not just a horse from the king's stables. Let robes that the king has worn. 
let a horse that the king has rode on and put a royal crown on whom the king has wore. Put that crown on his head. Put the king's crown. Now think about what Haman is asking. Put the king's crown on his head. Put the king's robe that the king has worn on and set him on the king's horse. And then look whatever he says next in verse 8 or verse 9. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Here's what Haman wants. Haman wants to be the king's equal. That's what this would have meant. Remember, he told Esther, You ask whatever you want of me up to half of my kingdom and I'll give it to you, right? Haman now comes in because he's heard the same thing. He was with him when he told Esther, up to half my kingdom. And so what Haman is asking for here is, I want half your kingdom. I want to be your equal. But what he doesn't know is that it's not him that's fixing to be exalted. It is Him that is fixing to be humbled. And so in verse 10, Then the king said to Haman, <laughs> Listen, please try to picture Haman in your head right now. I mean, try to get his face, try to get his chest puffed out, try to get him ready to have the king's crown put on his head, riding on the king's horse, being led throughout the square of the city and proclaimed, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Because remember, who would the king, who in the world would the king delight to honor more than me? And so look what he says here in verse, <clears throat> verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. My, how the tables have turned. Take them to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and Haman led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now again, I really believe this book is written because when you read it, you're supposed to laugh. And you're also supposed to be warned. You're supposed to be reminded that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now you think about that for a minute. God is opposed to the proud. In other words, Haman, you may in your pride rise to the top for a time, but you better not think for one second that God is for you. In your pride, God is against you. You don't want to be at war with God as your enemy. And so here, Haman finds out the hard way that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The Bible also tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in due time, He may exalt you. 
Same thing Mordecai did. Look at the difference between Haman and Mordecai. Haman exalts himself. What does Mordecai do? He humbles himself. And you're going to see it here in a minute. Haman, he's getting ready to go out to be proclaimed king. After Haman does this for Mordecai, Mordecai goes back to his service. Mordecai goes back to the king's gate sitting as a counselor. Pride is what actually created Satan. Lucifer began as a beautiful, godly angel. But the Bible tells us that in his heart it was lifted up when he saw his beauty, when he saw his majesty, when he saw how great God had created him, he became prideful in his heart and he literally became Satan. He went from being the son of the morning star, if you will, into being the son of darkness. And because of pride, all of this happened. Pride gives yourself glory. Humility gives God glory. Paul asked the Corinthians about their pride. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast in it as if you did not receive it? And that's the same question you and I should always be asking ourselves when we think about the jobs we have or when we think about where God has brought us or where we think about um, how God has blessed us. No matter where you are in your life, you are to ask yourself the question, what do I have that I did not receive? And what's the answer to that? Nothing. And so if that's true, what do you have to boast in? Pride would boast in anything that you have, anything you can do, and yet humility would point it all back to God and say, God, it all belongs to you. Amen. Humility looks back at God and says, God, I know who I am and what I can do without you. Nothing and no one. Nothing and no one. And so we need to evaluate ourselves and look for evidences of pride in our life and we'll get to that application at the end. James chapter 4 verse 13 through 17 look at what he says right here. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. That don't, say, that don't sound like nothing bad. I mean how many of you would have said well this evening I'm going to go to Lawrenceburg or I may go to Columbia and I may go to this place or I may go to Walmart and buy this and that. I mean that in and of itself don't sound evil does it? But look at what James said. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. It's like I told you this morning. I hope, if the Lord wills, that I may get to spend several more years here ministering to, to, to you. I've, I've, I'm thankful that God has, has allowed me to be able to do this. But can I tell you that I'm actually going to be here next Sunday? I can't tell you that. But what I can do is I can say, hey, if the Lord wills, He's the one that gives me life. He's the one that gives me all things. And this is the way humility should be. But instead, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Why? 
because God is the only one that has any control over anything. Only You only have what you have because God gave it to us. So we see Haman eat up with pride. Let me go through this quickly. Look with me at Esther chapter 5, verse 9 through 13. Y'all flip over quick. We got we to move on. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Now he's talking about when he left the first feast, okay? Why is he joyful and glad of heart? Because out of all the people in the kingdom, Esther only wanted two people at this feast. The king and Haman. Haman leaves out of here thinking, man, look at how great I must be. And then he leaves out joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. In other words, Haman thought he was somebody, didn't he? Guys, listen, this is so important. And we're going to get to the application at the end. If you don't think you have pride, that's, a, that's the very evidence that you have pride. <laughs> You're sitting there this morning going, you know, God, I'm so thankful I don't struggle with pride. You might want to rethink that statement. And I want to say to you, the Bible don't tell us that Great is the man who does not struggle with pride. The Bible says that great is the man who humbles himself. When you begin to accept the truths of God, I am nobody and nothing except for you. And you are everything. But Haman is the exact opposite of this. He has this satanic spirit that his heart is lifted up in himself and he wants to be king. Just like Satan wanted to be God. And so he just, I mean, he is filled with hatred toward, Malachi, uh, toward Mordecai because he neither rose nor trembled before him. He's filled with wrath against Mordecai. Verse 10, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent for his friends, he brought his friends and his wife. Next thing you're going to see is that God is, is sovereign over counsel that you receive. God knows Haman's heart. And so God is actually going to set this whole plan in motion. Now remember, we're looking at it from this side going, man, can you imagine being Mordecai? But you know what? Mordecai just needs to keep trusting God through this. Just keep trusting God, brother. And then look what he says in verse 11. And Haman recounted to his counselors the splendor of his riches. I love this. He's telling them all about his riches. Listen, this is his wife. She ought to know a little something about his riches. But he got to tell her about it again. And then he says, and the number of his sons. You think his wife don't know how many sons he's got? She's the one that had them probably. And all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, listen to this, even Queen Esther let no one but me Come with the king to the feast that she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew, the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits or 75 feet, be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. See what's happening here? He's getting counsel. And we would look at this and say, man, that was bad counsel. No, it wasn't. That was God's counsel. Because God knows 
how to humble those who exalt themselves, and God knows how to exalt those who humble themselves. And so God is, prov- God is sovereign over sleep. God is sovereign over um, counsel. God, God is sovereign over um, pride and humility. God is sovereign over every bit of it. And here He is up here orchestrating His plan so that it all works together for His plan and His purpose. And then in verse, the end of verse 14. Then, joy, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman's, and he had the gallows made. So here's the night. Haman's making the gallows. He's getting the gallows made. He's going to get up real early in the morning. He's going to be in the court. But he don't know that this whole thing is fixing to get flipped around. And so God is providence. God is sovereign over all of this counsel, and God used every bit of this counsel, and it was all to accomplish His purpose. And then finally, I'll end with the final point. God is sovereign, and we see God's providence in coincidence. Coincidence. Think about all of this, what we would call coincidence. Now first off, I know what some of you are screaming at me right now. What are you screaming at me? There is no such thing as coincidence. Amen. Amen. But just think about all of these things that people would have called coincidence. The king just so happens to have insomnia on this night. Just so happens. The king just so happens to ask for a particular book that Mordecai was written in. He just happens to turn to the page that Mordecai was remembered for what he had done. It just so happened that Mordecai was never rewarded. It just so happened that the king happens to ask who's in the court. It just so happened that Haman had been up all night building gallows and now he's the only one there to accomplish this purpose. Because remember, Haman said to the king when he thought it was going to be him, let a royal official, one of your most noble officials, lead him through the city. Who is the only one in the king's court right now that's the most noble and the most royal official? He's the man! Just so happens that Haman is in the court. It just so happens that Haman's mind is set on the destruction of Mordecai. And it just so happens that he makes the mistake to request the king to honor Mordecai or to order himself, which he don't know is going to be Mordecai. That's a whole lot of coincidence, ain't it? And so what do we learn from this? There is no such thing as coincidence. You look at your life and you say, well, this is coincidence that this happened, this coincidence. I wish I could take you back, and I don't have the time this morning to tell you the testimony of my life and all the things I've been through in school, all the things I've done, all the jobs I've had, where I landed, how I ended up in the ministry. I just wish I had the time to just put the pieces together to you this morning and tell you that God has been absolutely sovereign and His providence has been in every area of my life. And I can tell you that's included a lot of suffering. And I can also tell you that that's included a lot of blessing. And I can also tell you that by His grace alone, He gave me faith to trust Him through it all. 
And this is what we learned from this this morning. There is no such thing as coincidence. Let's end with the application this morning. If you got your notes, the application is this. In nights of sleeplessness, God is sovereign over it. So why don't you quit laying there and trying to go to sleep and just get on up and use that time to seek the Lord? Get up and just use that time to have a self-examination, to confess sin, to, to sing a song, to pray, to weep, to whatever it is that you need to do that's on your heart that you can have that time with God. And then it just might happen that God actually gives you the gift of sleep because remember what He said, He never sleeps or slumbers, but He gives to His beloved sleep. That's a pretty good application, I think. Another thing is look for evidence of pride in yourself. You say, well, what kind of evidences would it be? Let me give you just a few of them. The first one would be prayerlessness. See, you might say to me, Pastor, I don't really see pride in my life, and I might ask you this question. What's your prayer life look like? Because if you don't have much of a prayer life, you know what that says? God, I don't need you. I've got this. I can get myself up in the morning. I've got my own strength to get myself to work. I have my own job to make my own money, to buy my own truck and my own car, to drive myself to my own job. I can pay my own bills. I can make sure my family and my children always have food to eat. And you better be careful with that. Because what are you going to do the day God brings you to a place where you can't put food in your children's belly? And then you won't have but one choice to do one thing. Humble yourself. God, I can't do anything without you. Evidence of pride with us may be prayerlessness, may be ungratefulness. Maybe there's no desire in you to get up in the morning and say the first thing that ought to pop in your head is, God, thank you for giving me the ability to wake up this morning. You know why? Because God, I know you should have killed me in my sleep. And yet, you gave me another chance. You gave me breath, ungratefulness, no desire to give thanks, nothing in you that moves you to say, God, thank you. Thank you for, for, for what you do for me. Thank you for your grace all throughout my life. So ungratefulness could be it. Also, not seeking God's will for your lives. In other words, there's no desire in you to hear the Word of God. There's no desire in you to, to want to learn how to follow the Lord in your life. That's evidence of pride. Pride that says, God, I don't need you to tell me how to live my life. I can live my life all by myself. I know what I need. I know what I want. And you may not come out and say that, but by having an ungrateful heart, by not seeking God's will, by having prayerlessness in your life, that's what you're saying. And sometimes we even see evidence of pride in our life, in our humility, in our service. I heard Adrian Rogers tell a story one time about this Sunday school teacher, and she was telling a story about the Pharisee and the, um, the tax collector. You know the story, right? The Pharisee's standing at the temple and he's, he's praying and he's saying, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. God, I thank you that I go to the temple uh, and pray 
three times a day and I give my tithes and I do this and I do... I mean, he was filled with religious activity. And then the Bible says that the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But all he would do would just stand there and beat his breast and say, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus said one of those men went home to his house justified that day. And you remember who it was? It was that tax collector. And I heard of a Sunday school teacher that was telling that story to her kids and she ended with a prayer and she said, God, thank you that, that we're not like that, that we're not like that tax collector and thank you that we're not like this Pharisee. And in her heart, she meant well, but what she should have said is, God, we're just like that tax collector. <laughs> and let us pray the same way and let us have the same kind of heart to know who you are and to know who we are. And instead of trying to look at the service that we do and the things that we do for God, we don't take pride in that. We don't take pride in even a false humility. God, we take pride in nothing because what do we have that didn't come from you? And then, next, we should take warning that if our hearts are bent on following its own way, even after hearing God's counsel, <laughs> He will sometimes give you counselors to comfort you in your destruction. Just like He did Haman. The reason I bring this up is because I'm, I'm guilty of this too, but here's one of our biggest weaknesses as sinners trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I will try to counsel you the truth, but in your flesh, you just can't do it. You can't find the strength to follow God. You can't find the strength to actually do what the Bible would tell you to do. And instead, you go your own path. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes when you make up in your heart that you know the way, even though you know what the Word of God says, even though you know what the counsel of God would tell you to do, I want to tell you sometimes God will eventually put people in your path to, make you, to give you counselors to say, okay, follow your own heart. And can I tell you that the end of that is nothing but your torment. The way of God, the counsel of God in the current time, yes. Will it possibly cause your suffering? A lot of times, yeah. But I can tell you that in the end, it is always going to be for your reward. And so don't don't hear the counsel of God and know the counsel of God and still try to seek your own way because again, that's evidence of pride in your life and in the end, pride goeth before destruction. The last thing, remember, there is no such thing as coincidence. God is up to something. So trust Him. If I don't get no other lesson to you, and I promise I'm closing, all right? Y'all don't be mad at me because I'm long-winded. I'm long-winded. If you don't like it, there's churches all over this county, all right? <laughs> if I can't teach you anything else, can I please teach you that no matter what God allows in your life, no matter how, who He allows to come and who He allows to go, no matter what He does in promoting you or what He does in not recognizing you, no matter what He does in blessing you or what He does in allowing you to suffer in this temporary world, can I tell you that there is no such thing as coincidence? 
None. And so I'm telling you, the lesson we take from this is for the people of God, trust Him. Trust Him. God, I don't know what you're doing. God, this don't make sense. But I'm going to trust you. I don't care if it takes the rest of my life. I love one of the things that Job said more than anything. You know, out of all of his struggles, and nobody has struggled other than the Lord Jesus Christ like Job did. I've not met the man yet. But somewhere through that thing, Job said, God, even though you slay me, yet I will trust you. I will praise you. No matter what you do in my life, I will not quit trusting you, even all the way to my death. I know who you are. And I know that your purpose and your plan will always be worked out. And it will always be for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. If y'all would stand this morning for a time of response. And I would encourage you to respond in some way. Maybe it's just the application in your life. I pray that you understand I'm putting a lot of emphasis on application here lately in our sermons because I want you to leave here applying this to your life. I want you to grow closer to God. I want you to be strengthened in your faith. And you're going to do that when you hear the Word of God, you believe it, and you actually apply it to your life. But whatever you need to respond to God this morning, now's your time to respond however you would see fit.